Okay, now the excitement is uh, just beginning. Um, I'm Claire Fowler from the Office of the Dean of the College, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the Class of 2010 Freshman Assembly. Um, this is a very special event in orientation, I think, because it's the beginning of your intellectual life at Princeton, and you share this experience with your entire class, and we have structured the event in the same manner as many of your classes will be taught. You have a reading assignment first, you come to a lecture with a distinguished faculty member, and then you go to a student-oriented discussion group, which we call Precepts at Princeton. So tonight will be your first try at that. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce to you tonight's speaker, Marta Tienda, the Morris Daring Professor in Demographic Studies and Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton. After teaching at the University of Chicago and at University of Wisconsin, Professor Tienda came to Princeton in 1997, where she has also served as the Director of the Office of Population Research. She received her undergraduate degree in Spanish from Michigan State and her master's degree and doctorate in sociology from the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Tienda's research interests include social dem demography, youth employment and labor markets, race and ethnic stratification, immigration, and access to higher education. She's the author of so many books and articles it would take me the entire freshman assembly to go through them, so I'll spare you that. You can certainly look her up on the website. Um, her most recent works, Hispanics and the Future of America, A Multiple Origins, Uncertain Destinies, were published in 2006. A sociologist of international importance, Professor Tienda has served as the president of the Population Association of America and has been elected to many other prestigious professional associations, including the, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. From 1991 to 1995, she was the editor of the American Journal of Sociology. She currently serves on the board of the Rand Corporation, the Sloan Foundation, and the Corporation of Brown University. Her work as a sociologist influences national policy debates on poverty, employment, affirmative action, education, and immigration. I know her best as a generous colleague and a dedicated teacher and mentor of our undergraduates. She's a faculty fellow for the tennis team. She has served as an academic advisor for Forbes. She's taught freshman seminars, as well as departmental courses and Woodrow Wilson policy courses. And she's actually, uh, the mark of her devotion actually to the institution is that Professor Tienda is actually on leave this year, and yet she has still come to give, deliver this address. She's made a difference, a real difference, in lives of many Princeton students who have worked with her, and I hope some of you in this room will get that opportunity. Concern for equity, access, and opportunity marks Professor Tienda's work as a citizen, as a scholar, and a teacher. And these are issues that must concern us all as we negotiate an increasingly global community both at home and abroad. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Professor Marta Tienda, who will address the class of 2010 on the subject of diversity and the boundaries of belonging. Thank you. Good evening. Even my classes at the University of Wisconsin did not reach this level. I have to tell you one of the reasons I decided to do this, even though I am on leave, uh, is that I had the most wonderful teaching experience that I've had of my life, I think, last fall with the freshman seminar I ran uh, here at this institution. And I realized what an opportunity it is, what a privilege it is to be able to address not only those who were in my seminar last year, but all of you at once. 
In a provocative and highly controversial book entitled Who Are We?, noted Harvard historian Samuel Huntington claims that globalization, large-scale immigration, dual citizenship, and multilingualism threaten the core of American culture and our national identity. He calls for a recommitment to our Anglo-Protestant origins. Huntington is not the first to link immigration and population diversity to national identity while questioning who rightly belongs to the core. In fact, angst about immigration and population diversity dates to the founding of the United States as a sovereign nation. Even as George Washington in 1793 welcomed the Irish immigrants, quote, to enjoy full participation of all our rights and privileges, unquote, Benjamin Franklin worried about the threat posed by German immigrants. As their numbers approached one-third of Pennsylvania's population, Franklin warned that, quote, unless the stream of these people can be turned away from their country to other countries, they will soon outnumber us so that we will not be able to save our language or our government, unquote. History proved Benjamin Franklin's worries about assimilation of German immigrants unfounded. But why would a signatory to both the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution worry about the growing German presence in Pennsylvania? And why, some 220 years later, did Samuel Huntington warn that immigration threatens America's core identity and values? Pruitt's take on diversity is quite different, as you know. Like Jack Kennedy and Ronald Reagan, he regards it as a source of strength. To the question, who are we, Pruitt responds, quote, as the most demographically complex nation in the world, we are the world, unquote, or in Bent Wattenberg's term, the first universal nation. Both when our democracy was being forged and now is a mature democracy, population diversity has challenged the values of inclusiveness, equality, and social cohesion. Do we live democracy as contradiction, or has the United States drifted away from its professed commitment to the ideals of equality and social justice? Does population diversification change the social fabric of America, our national identity, as Sam Huntington claims, or is it public tolerance for diversity that changes over time as the demographic composition of our nation changes? As I explore these questions tonight, I will illustrate the powerful role of demography for understanding matters of social justice by drawing parallels between contemporary and historical concerns about alleged difficulty of integrating culturally distinct peoples. And I will argue that now, as in the past, immigration is an invaluable resource for future national prosperity. Because Mr. Huntington singled out Hispanics as the current source of cultural divisiveness, I will dispute his assertions with recent data from the National Sciences, National Academy of Sciences panel that I uh, report, that I co-authored. First, I provide a broad brush synopsis of U.S. immigration. The historical backdrop brings into focus the role of immigration in contemporary population diversification while also providing perspective about the meaning of change. I will dwell on the Hispanic population because it is the most rapidly growing segment of the U.S. population, because Latin Americans are currently the largest component of uh, U.S. immigration flows, and because the proliferation of Spanish throughout the United States is widely misunderstood as a sign of non-assimilation. Throughout, I will pose questions for you to discuss tonight at your respective colleges for you to ponder over the coming months as the immigration controversy plays out in the printed and electronic media, 
And as you think about how your Princeton education is enhanced by cultural diversity and the intellectual richness you are about to experience. Immigration is coterminous with the American experience. Yet common references to our immigration legacy oversimplify the various contexts of reception that successive waves encountered. Pruitt's article discusses the population diversification narrative of the 19th and early 20th centuries, so I won't belabor this except to elaborate and underscore two points. First, how the ebb and flow of immigration corresponds to economic cycles and what that means. And second, how changes in source countries, that is, diversification of the flows, triggers anxieties about national identity and fuels controversy about who belongs. U.S. immigration unfolded in four major waves, all of which enhanced national prosperity and strengthened our national character, but in different ways. During colonial settlement, all European residents were technically immigrants, but of course there was no census to classify them as immigrants or the Native Americans as natives. The second wave occurred during the mid-19th century. It both enabled westward expansion and accelerated the nation's transformation from a colonial to an agrarian cultural economy. Wave three, which peaked during the early 20th century, energized the Industrial Revolution, bolstered the growth of cities, and catapulted the United States to a world power status. Currently in progress, the fourth wave coincides with a transition from a manufacturing to a service economy that involves the growth of both high skills and low skills, and importantly, a period of rising wage inequality. The ebb and flow of immigration during the 20th century is evident in the changing size of the foreign-born population. These pars represent the immigrant stock, that is, the number of foreign-born residents at each period. Mortality and return migration are the only two mechanisms that lower the bars. Note that the echo of wave three, which peaked in the first decade of the 20th century, persisted well beyond its corresponding period of mass migration. Although demographers predict a slowdown in immigrant flows in the future, the foreign-born population is projected to exceed 40 million by 2030. Although the absolute size of the foreign-born population is much larger now than at the turn of the century, in 1910, immigrants made up nearly 15% of all residents, an historic high that has not yet been sur surpassed, but will be very soon. Census 2000 recorded one in 10 residents as foreign-born, but more recent estimates place the foreign-born population around 12 to 14 percent as around 19, uh, 2004. However, based on the amount of play given to immigration in the public media, one might think the numbers to be much higher, and polls certainly reveal that to be the case. My second point about the historical record concerns that third wave. The arrival of Southern and Eastern Europeans at the turn of the 20th century triggered vitriolic anti-immigrant sentiment and outright xenophobia. Pseudoscientific claims about their biological inferiority relative to persons of Anglo stock buttressed racist allegations about the inability of Southern and Eastern European immigrants to assimilate into the cultural mainstream. Congressional debates in response culminated in the legislation to restrict their entry. 
1924 Immigration Act set the first numerical limits on immigration, establishing country quotas based on 2% of the resident nationalities enumerated in the 1890 census. But heated debate ensued about whether to use the 1890 census as the law stipulated or the 1920 um, census to apportion the quotas. This controversy centered fundamentally on the desire to protect the Tocquevelian image of national identity as white and Anglo-Saxon, one reminiscent of Huntington's claims, uh, erroneous claims, I might add, about Hispanic immigration today. The 1890 census assured that the new arrivals would hail from Western Europe, but the 1920 census did not. In 1890, almost 90% of all immigrants were from Northern and Western Europe or Canada, but by 1920, only 45% were. In the end, visa quotas were based on the 1920 census. Elsewhere, I have argued that although imbued with racial undertones, this debate was also about how immigrants shifted the balance of congressional power between urban and rural states. I invite you to read the congressional records of the period. You will not find much that qualifies as politically correct. If the architects of the 1924 Act were in denial about demography in America, they were even more naive about how the politics of exclusion extolled their price as unintended consequences. References to the 1924 Act emphasized the quota that it imposed to exclude groups by limiting new admissions to tiny shares of the resident national origins, but the long-term impact of this legislation derives more from the countries that were exempt from the quotas. These include Canada, Newfoundland, Mexico, Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, the Canal Zone, and the independent countries of Central and South America, along with their immediate uh, family members. Not only was the gangplank not pulled for our southern neighbors, but it was widened several decades later. The fourth immigration wave began on the heels of the tumultuous 1960s, which gave birth to the civil rights movement, affirmative action, and the great society agenda. Even as sweeping legislation sought to rectify racial and ec economic injustices in our country, social movements asserting the rights to self-determination for historically excluded groups laid the foundations for contemporary identity politics that included women as well as disenfranchised minority groups. Importantly, though, this tumultuous decade witnessed the passage of the 1965 amendments to the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which gave preference to family reunification in immigrant admissions and rescinded the discriminatory national origins quota that were established by the 1924 Act and reaffirmed in 1952. This act uh, had favored Europeans and excluded Asians. If the resurgence of mass migration after 1960 was facilitated by the uh, 1965 amendments, changes in the composition of immigrants actually were seeded in the 1924 Act. By abolishing the discriminatory quota system, the 65 amendments opened doors to immigration from countries that were excluded, which is notably Asian and African nations, albeit with strict country limits of 20,000 per country per year up to a maximum ceiling of 170,000 for the whole world. And by emphasizing family reunification in rationing visas, the amendments widened the gangplank for countries that had been exempted from the restrictions, 
namely persons from Mexico and the Americas, as well as Canada, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Haiti. Does this sound familiar? In signing the 1965 amendments, President Lyndon Johnson reassured his critics of benign consequences, and I quote, this bill that we signed today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives, unquote. Then Attorney General Robert Kennedy predicted approximately 5,000 immigrants from the Asia-Pacific Triangle and very few thereafter. Secretary of State Dean Rusk anticipated 8,000 immigrants from India over five years. Senator Edward Kennedy argued that the ethnic mix of the country would not be upset. History proved them all very wrong, but hindsight is always 2020. And as the fourth immigration wave unfolded during the last quarter of the 20th century, it rewrote the U.S. demographic narrative more quietly, but no less dramatically, than the Great Society legislation. Combined, changes in the volume and composition of immigrants and the childbearing patterns of immigrant women reshape the nation's racial, uh, ethno-racial landscape and will do so uh, further over the coming decades. Asians were the major beneficiaries from the uh, dismantling of the national origins quoted during the 1960s. Their foreign-born share roughly doubled between 1960 and 2000. Immigration also increased the foreign-born share of the Hispanic population from less than 20% in 1960 to about one in three by, 19, by the year 2000. Popular media imagery notwithstanding, the vast majority of Hispanics are U.S. born, and this share will continue to grow in the future for reasons I will explain. Because the Americas were exempted from the restrictions imposed by the National Origins Act, immigrants from Mexico, Central, and South America comprised about one-third of legal admissions during the 1930s and 40s, and nearly 40% of new arrivals in the 1950s. As recently as 1960, 40% of U.S. immigrants hailed from Europe. But today, over half come from Latin America, up from about 42% the prior decade. Seen differently, since 1960, half of all new immigrants have come from the Americas, roughly one-third from Asia, and the remainder from the rest of the world combined. Without a doubt, the 1965 U.S. immigration laws left an indelible imprint on the U.S. population by increasing the size and growth, by redrawing color lines beyond black and white, and most recently by changing the geographic distribution of the foreign-born. Allow me to illustrate how each bears on the terms of belonging. With more than 14 million new legal and illegal immigrants, the 1990s registered the largest volume of immigrants in U.S. history, even surpassing the peak during the first decade of the 20th century. This decade is poised to exceed 15 million. Currently, immigration accounts for over half of U.S. population growth, but that is counting both the immigrants themselves and the children born to immigrant women. Let me emphasize that the distinction between immigrants and their U.S.-born children is very important because the rights and privileges differ by birthplace as well as by legal status. To appreciate the aggregate impact on population size of immigration, this graph simulates a no-immigration counterfactual that takes into consideration new arrivals and new births from foreign-born women and their children. In other words, the calculation simulates what the U.S. population uh, would have been had immigration stopped in 1960. 
essentially eliminating the fourth wave. Immigrants and their offspring have added approximately 47 million residents to the U.S. population since 1960, which is about half of the registered increase. The total contribution of immigration to future population growth will rise mainly because immigrant women bear more children on average than the native-born. Fertility, not immigration, is the primary driver of diversification today. Children born in the U.S., regardless of the legal status of their parents, are U.S. citizens. They are entitled to the full rights of membership. Constitutional amendments to try to change this right have failed repeatedly. Non-white U.S. Uh, white non-white uh, white uh, women average the lowest fertility rates of all major ethnic groups, while Hispanics have the highest. Because foreign-born women and those with low education levels bear more children on average than U.S.-born uh, and high-education women, the high Hispanic average partly reflects these differences. For reference, a total fertility rate of 2.2 means that a population will re replace itself and grow at a stable but low rate. Averaging 2.2 children, currently blacks satisfy the criteria for replacement. That Hispanic fertility is above replacement implies that this group will continue to grow and remain relatively young compared with other groups. By contrast, non-Hispanic whites, whose fertility now is below replacement, are aging and thus will gradually shrink into relative and absolute size. Although Asian fertility is just slightly below replacement, the continued influx of new immigrant portends some growth of this group well into the future, unless the fertility of newcomers falls well below 2.2. The consequences then of the fourth wave immigration and differential fertility for the ethno-racial diversity of the U.S. population are striking, especially when we compare them to the first half of the 20th century, when racial divisions were sharply drawn in black and white. In short, the fourth wave immigrants have also rewritten the nation's racial script. From 1900 to 1950, the race-ethnic composition of the United States changed relatively little. Whites comprised about 88% of the total, and blacks were the dominant minority group during this period of relatively slow demographic growth. Moreover, Jim Crow laws maintained rigid racial divides in the South, while residential segregation served the same function in the urban North, especially in the post-war periods. Comparing the first half and the second half of the 20th century underscores how immigration has redrawn the ethnic profile, but I want to emphasize timing of the change, which occurred mostly during the last 25 years. On the heels of the most intense demographic uh, immigration decade in U.S. history, Census 2000 recorded the largest minority population in its history, 28%. 12% self-identified as African-American, 11.5% as Hispanic, 4% Asian, and other groups combined made up the rest. Looking back, it's clear that the third wave was also intense and as well temporarily concentrated. Yet the immigrants that allegedly posed these formidable integration challenges at the turn of the century have melted into this category my colleague Stan Lieberson calls unhyphenated whites because they commonly report their ancestry as American or USA. Today is different because immigrant groups have been sorted into racial categories. Asian Americans insisted that their countries of origin be listed as separate races beginning with the 1980 census. And while the Census Bureau always add the disclaimer that Hispanics can be of any race, 
By default, the label is acquiring racial connotations. This ethno-racial transformation did not go unnoticed by the general public and the media. Neutral or not, the public responds to headlines based on their own experience, what they perceive multiplied by gossip and other distortions. For example, only a tiny share of the population, about 2.4%, reported more than one race, but media coverage exaggerates the prevalence of biracial identities. More important, while the pr provocative as a newspaper headline, the very suggestion that immigration undermines national unity has no historical foundation and is not a likely scenario going forward. Yet perceptions are powerful drivers of human behavior, even when facts and solid evidence indicates otherwise. Specifically, if residents perceive that immigrants are overtaking their community just because they are residentially concentrated and visible, these perceptions are real in their behavioral consequences. This brings me to the third demographic imprint of the new immigration. That is, in addition to the growth and diversification of the U.S. population, the fourth wave differs from prior waves in its settlement patterns. Historically, and in fact until quite recently, immigrants were concentrated in six states. While these states continue to attract and retain the bulk of new arrivals, Census 2000 confirmed what many school boards and local governments already knew, that immigrants are scattering across the nation, settling in places where the foreign-born had not resided for decades. Moreover, it's recent immigrants that are driving these flows. For example, the state with the fastest-growing Hispanic population in the country is North Carolina, whose Hispanic population grew five-fold during the 1990s, while that of Georgia quadrupled and Nevada's trebled. Furthermore, about 39% of undocumented residents today reside outside of the traditional destination states. Lured by abundant jobs and affordable housing, immigrants are transforming the face of, of American cities and small towns from the heartland to the northern borders and the deep south. This historically unprecedented immigrant dispersal is a harbinger of changes in intergroup relations and segregation patterns. While there is some evidence that racial segregation levels are declining in areas where the new immigrants have begun to settle, Hispanic residential segregation levels are on the rise in both traditional settlement communities and many new southern destinations. One might think that dispersal to new destinations increases the chances of integration because the relative size of these new groups is small compared to the resident population. But a recent news clip about Toombs County, Georgia, that uh, took place while we were conducting the work for the National Academy of Sciences made national news. In what might be a first for Georgia, students from one high school attended three separate proms. Toombs County's dubious distinction demonstrates the evolving arithmetic of race in America where white plus black plus brown doesn't add up to one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This is a quote uh, in uh, one of the local newspapers. But this Toombs County, Georgia, it's a little town about 200 miles southeast of Atlanta, made national news on CNN as well, when its local high school sponsored these three proms instead of the usual two. The principal, Ralph Hardy, who is black, insisted that racism isn't a serious problem at his school and that segregated proms are a matter of taste. In his quote, Latinos, blacks, and whites all prefer their own music and food, unquote. A prime example of communities, mostly in the South, that have experienced unprecedented Hispanic population growth, Toombs instantiates the continued struggle for racial integration and its growing complexity as newcomers from Mexico, Central South America, and Asia are redrawing color lines 
perhaps forcing multiculturalism in places previously colored black and white. Looking beyond this headline, the anecdote, a true story, reveals how many of tomorrow's workers experience qualified acceptance as they forge their identities in their new communities. Although many suburbanites welcome new immigrants as hardworking people, in a growing number of places where the foreign-born had not settled before, the newcomers have experienced a backlash of rejection, often triggered by the specter of day laborers congregating on street corners anxious to work. The inherent uh, contradiction of qualified acceptance is that the very communities rejecting new immigrants as neighbors readily accept their labor for menial jobs in landscaping, dwelling, repair, domestic work, and the like. The broad social and political implications of the immigrant residential dispersal are not yet certain. But the proliferation of local ordinances and vigilante activities to restrict and exclude the foreign-born is worrisome. In response to congressional recalcitrance about comprehensive immigration reform, over 540 local ordinances have been passed in communities across 27 states in attempts to include immigrants from access to schools, medical services, and housing. That's this year alone. Unfortunately, the U.S.-born children of undocumented workers often are caught in this crossfire, as is currently the case for the mother and child barricaded in a Chicago Methodist church in order to avoid deportation. The massive demonstrations for immigrant rights and to protest the punitive legislation before Congress this past spring are also historically unprecedented in their national scope, in their scale, and in the massive involvement of residents without legal status. Equally noteworthy, the first protests were not in California or Texas as they had been in the past, these states with large foreign-born and large Hispanic populations, but rather in Chicago, in Milwaukee, and other places with lower density populations. Again, on May 1st, over 120 cities across the nation held protests on behalf of immigrant workers. Some have likened the protest to an emerging civil rights movement. Whether by coincidence or not, the size of the African American population in the South on the eve of the civil rights movement was approximately similar, actually a bit smaller, than the estimated size of the undocumented population today. 11.3 million African Americans in the South versus nearly 12 million unauthorized immigrants today. Today, the public debate about immigration reform, which is focused on the burgeoning undocumented population, is about the political hypocrisy that on the one hand pretends to regulate admission of foreign-born people through legal channels, and on the other hand refuses to enforce laws on the books. The vast majority of undocumented immigrants are law-abiding citizens. The 12 million unauthorized migrants, moreover, did not arrive in the last five years. They've been coming steadily since the late 1960s because of the inconsistent enforcement of employer sanctions for higher unauthorized workers and because the 1986 legislation did not grant amnesty to all who were resident at the time. It's no coincidence that the greatest surge in undocumented immigration occurred during the late 1990s, a period of vigorous economic growth that was characterized by pervasive labor shortages at all skill levels. So then what changed? Were there no protests when the volume of undocumented entries exceeded the number of legal entries as occurred during the 1990s? Why were there no protests? I submit that three sets of circumstances have rekindled the resurgence of anti-immigrant sentiment 
and the renewed drive to pull up the gangplank. These are homeland security, growing economic insecurity, and rising inequality. In short, the context of reception probably changed in more meaningful ways than the migrants. When growing numbers of native residents themselves are facing new forms of uncertainty and insecurity, immigrants provide an easy scapegoat for generalized social ills. Let me illustrate. First, terrorism has intensified the fear of the other since 9-11, leading to many to conflate border and national securities, sometimes deliberately for political expedience, but also to blame the foreign-born for government failure to protect the homeland. I have little to add except to note that while the U.S. government forced all universities to install the CEVIS system to keep track of all foreign students, there is no comparable monitoring of temporary foreign workers. Ask yourself why. Currently, uh, there is no way to know to monitor which temporary workers change employers, how many actually renew their temporary work visas, and even whether the workers leave the country at the end of their work permit. Some may adjust their status by marrying a U.S. citizen or having the employer sponsor them as legal immigrants, but who knows which and when and where. Yet if a foreign student falls below the required full credit load, SEVA sends a signal to the government. Second, rising economic insecurity also influences workers' perception of immigration. Growing number of workers lack health insurance, retirees and workers approaching retirement are confronting loss of hard-earned pensions, and job security is phasing across the board. Although college-educated workers, which you will be soon, fare better than those lacking post-secondary training, uh, even they are not guaranteed immunity from the weakened safety net. It's conventional knowledge that since the mid-1970s, the earnings of college-educated workers rose faster than those of high school graduates. Economists explain the wage premiums uh, that reflect a shortage of college-educated workers relative to the less educated. Not to worry for you, but although college-educated workers still earn more than high school graduates, as shown by the ratio of their annual earnings, the college wage premium also contracted after the last business cycle. Whether and how much it will rebound is unclear, but this has little to do with immigration. In fact, the wage convergence partly involved an increase in the earnings of unskilled workers. Third, and perhaps most important, is that the fourth wave coincided with the greatest surge in wage and income disparities in recent memory, and these began before the fourth wave was in full swing. You should know that the U.S. leads its industrial peers in the extent of income inequality. Our tolerance for inequality seems to be growing as well. According to a study by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and the Economic Policy Institute, since the early 1980s, the economic gap between the highest income and both poor and middle-income families widened. That is, as middle and lower income families' incomes rose modestly, incomes of the richest families surged. In marked contrast to the widely shared prosperity that narrowed economic inequality from World War II to the mid-1970s, recent trend shows our country is pulling apart. The significance of this trend cannot be overstated. Income concentration at the very top not only undermines possibilities for families at the bottom to make ends meet, but importantly, also undermines their ability to embark their children, future generations, on a path to economic mobility. 
Economic disparities are even more dramatic when based on wealth, which includes all financial assets, not just income. The ratio of the wealth of the richest 1% to that of a household with median wealth grew considerably. In 1962, well before the onset of the fourth wave, the richest 1% of households had 125 the wealth of the typical household. But by 2004, the disparity ballooned to 190 times. In dollars, this means 14.8 million for the upper crust compared with 82,000 for the middle quintile of the wealth distribution. That's the middle, not the low quintile. Of course, there are even more egregious renditions of how the U.S. is pulling apart economically, yet like the ratio of CEO compensation to average wages or to minimum wages. In case you miss a 19, the uh, 28th August New York Times article documenting that, quote, real wages fell to record lows even as corporate profits skyrocket, it's their words, not mine, let me illustrate. In 2005, the typical CEO earned 262 times the pay of the average worker. Put differently, the average CEO earned in a single workday roughly what an average worker earned for the entire year. This is the second highest disparity of CEO pay to average wages over 40 years of recorded data. One surpassed only when the stock market peaked before the bubble burst. Yet the minimum wage has not been raised since 1997, and net of inflation is at its lowest level in purchasing power since 1955. Yes, I was born then. That is even before I entered the workforce, and I started at $1.25 an hour. In 2005, 429,000 workers were earning exactly the minimum wage, while 1.4 million were earning less than the legal minimum. Combined, these two groups represent 2.5% of those who work for an hourly wage, or 1.3% of the entire workforce. Immigrants are disproportionately represented among low-wage workers. It's difficult to fathom that diversity pulls us apart more than these economic trends, so I hope they give you some perspective on the meaning of immigrant protests this past spring. The diversification narratives that I have sketched would be of little consequence if the social, economic, or civic consequences, the promises of the great uh, society had been delivered. Some were, others have since been rescinded, and still others have been res uh, threatened by restrictive legislation that deprives immigrants of their full rights of citizenship, such as that passed in 1996 or various proposals currently under consideration to reform the U.S. immigration system. If immigration could be stopped, which is highly unlikely, our demographic future portends even more diversification in the years ahead, because fertility, not immigration, is the primary motor of change. Then if diversification is here to stay, will it also foretell the shape of things to come? And will that reshaping reify class divisions along race and ethnic lines? By 2030, 40% of the population is projected to be black, Hispanic, or Asian. Nearly half, 19%, are projected to be Hispanic, and that number is conservative. So what does that portend for the future of America? For this, I must return to Professor Huntington, not because I enjoy beating dead horses, but because his reputation presumes legitimate authority uh, for his claims. In Who, we are, Who Are We?, he argues that immigration not only undermines our shared identity, but also that the cultural division between Anglo and Hispanic is especially dangerous. In his words, 
The persistent inflow of Hispanic immigrants threatens to divide the United States into two people, two cultures, two languages. Unlike past immigrant groups, Mexicans and other Latinos have not assimilated into the mainstream U.S. culture, forming instead their own political and linguistic enclaves from Los Angeles to Miami and rejecting Anglo-Protestant values that built the American dream. The United States ignores this challenge at its peril. Now, obviously, Mr. Huntington does not appreciate that salsa now outsells ketchup or that Hispanics now represent the uh, fastest-growing consumer market and a formidable economic presence in the business world. For him, what is at issue is that whether Hispanics are replicating the assimilation experience of past immigrants. He says no. The National Academy of Sciences panel that I chaired says yes. As the most rapidly growing segment today, Hispanics account for nearly half of the growth and represent 14%. Uh, by 2030, when you will be in the prime of your working uh, and family careers, nearly one in four U.S. residents will be Hispanic or of Hispanic ancestry. Today, Hispanics are also the largest foreign-born population in the country, a milestone that was reached in 1990 when, for the first time, immigration from Latin America surpassed the combined flows from Asia and Europe. By 2000, foreign-born Mexicans were more numerous than all European and Canadian immigrants taking together. But what does this mean? Numbers neither confer influence nor reveal the dynamics of, and consequences of growth. Subsuming 20 different nationalities, Hispanics are a very heterogeneous population, including the descendants of the early Spanish settlers in what is now the United States, multiple cohorts of recent immigrants, and importantly, a second generation. The label Hispanic is a bureaucratic construction for administrative convenience that itself raises questions about the unum and the pluribus, whether there is any cohesion culturally to these pan-ethnic labels whether or not language is a sufficient condition for the UNAM. That's the topic of another lecture, and in fact, the topic of the freshman seminar last year. In contrast to Mr. Huntington, I claim that the first decade of the 21st century, which we're halfway through, is a defining moment for both the Hispanic population and for the United States. We are in the midst of the Hispanic moment. It is dynamic, and yet Hispanic destinies are not entirely unclear. Like population diversification overall, the dynamism derives from births and immigration, and the relative size of these components is highly consequential for understanding the future significance of the Hispanic moment. During the 1960s, it was birth that outpaced immigrants by a ratio of two to one, but these components equalized in the 1970s. The last two decades of the 20th century, when immigration eclipsed fertility as a driver of population growth, reversed the scenario again. Immigration will remain the uh, driver, will remain potent as a driver of growth in the future, but already in this decade, it is fertility that is driving the growth. And this shift tri the gener triggered the generational transition that will define the terms of belonging for the fastest growing segment, all of whom are U.S. citizens. It, today, it is the children and the grandchildren of immigrants that are spurring Hispanic population growth. And this uh, setting in motion an unprecedented but pivotal generational transition. In 1960, over half of all Hispanics were third generation or higher. By 2030, under one in three Hispanics will be second generation, and a comparable share will be third generation or higher. This seems to represent a modest increase since the year 2000, but the shift is profound for two reasons. 
The numbers involved are significantly higher, 26 million a generation hence versus 10 million now. And second, the age structure involved is very different. With a median age under 13, the majority of the Hispanic generation is now in school. By 2030, the majority will be in the labor force. For the nation, the youthful Hispanic population represents a potential dividend not available to other industrialized countries that are experiencing population declines and labor shortages. Hispanics differ from uh, prior immigrants and contemporary Asian immigrants in that they share a common language, low average education levels, the large segment form born that is undocumented and in this youthful age structure. By themselves, none of these attributes are distinguishing, but collectively they define a profile that differs from that of most immigrant and minority groups today and in the past. In many ways, though, Hispanics are replicating the pathways of prior immigrant groups. Trends in earnings, in household income, in home ownership also point to Hispanics' ascent to the middle class, yet most of the mobility appears to take place between the first and second generation. And, Mr. Huntington, despite your assertions that the proliferation of Spanish in neighborhoods populated by recent immigrants signals deepening cultural divisions, all empirical evidence shows that language shift from Spanish to English is virtually complete by the third, time, third generation and sometimes uh, sooner. Looking ahead, the temporal coincidence of a large Hispanic second generation and an aging white majority represents an opportunity to attenuate the consequences of rising old age dependency. Stated succinctly, Hispanics are coming of age in an aging white society. As growing numbers of young Hispanics replace white retirees in the labor force, they can help attenuate the labor shortages currently experienced by uh, Western Europe. In 2000, more than 12% of all U.S. residents reached retirement age, compared with fewer than 5% of Hispanics. It's time to sum up, and I've been instructed to leave you with discussion questions, which some may have circulated. Uh, because I've covered lots of ground, I think some summary comments are in order. I've argued that in the current economic and political environment, the volume and the diversity of recent immigrant streams poses new challenges for social cohesion and integration for several reasons. Changes in the origins of immigrants since 1980 have visibly altered the racial and ethnic landscape of the entire nation, not just the immigrant receiving states. Fertility of immigrant women has set in motion this unprecedented generational tra transition that will continue to drive diversification in the future, and these forces are already in motion and even if, will continue even if immigration is stopped. And three, rising shares of immigrants from Latin America have fueled these old tensions about linguistic diversity and the dilution of national identity. Let me add a fourth, which I mentioned in passing but did not elaborate for lack of time. Large shares of recent immigrants are unskilled, which will slow social mobility of the second generation unless educational opportunities are expanded immediately. The demographic coincidence of an aging white society and growing cohorts of minority youth represents this window of opportunity to secure the economic future of retirees while enhancing the nation's global competitiveness. To realize this demographic dividend afforded by the Hispanic age bubble requires significant improvements in representation among the college educated. The choice, nine minimum wage workers to produce each social security check or one skilled worker earning the average wage. 
Making the educational investments required to close the school achievement gap requires political muscle. Reaping the Hispanic demographic dividend requires understanding that our commonalities outweigh our differences and that human resources, not oil, are the greatest national asset in a globalized industrial world. What will jeopardize our future, then, is a failure to harness the potential dividends from the age bubble enabled by immigration, not language or cultural diversity, as Huntington claims. Our continued world leadership is best served by capitalizing on immigration, not demonizing uh, the migrants. So rather than demonize uh, immigration, why not capitalize? Yes, the volume and composition changed since 1980, but so did opportunities for earning a living. Why not realign our demography with our democracy? And Mr. Huntington, rather than return to our Anglo-Saxon Protestant origins, ignoring that the Native Americans and Spanish settlers were here first, why not a return to the demographic, democratic ideals and values of our founding fathers that emphasized equality and inclusiveness in the terms of belonging? I advocate capitalizing on immigration rather than merely managing it as Congress is wont to do. To capitalize on immigration requires meaningful integration emphasizing unity and unqualified terms of belonging. Both the historical record and recent experience testify that cultural diversity is rendered symbolic within a generation, that language shift is complete in the third generation, and that immigrants represent a critical resource for U.S. immigrant uh, interests. Maximum civic incorporation of immigrants is, according to Ken Pruitt, Quote, a fundamental step toward cultivating a shared commitment to the values of liberty, democracy, and equal opportunity, unquote. Keeping millions of workers underground serves neither our economic future nor our democratic institutions. The burdening undocumented population poses a monumental ethical dilemma, both for politicians anxious to guarantee the business community with an ample supply of cheap workers and for bureaucrats in denial about the ability of human ingenuity to overcome physical barriers in response to market opportunities. We need to build bridges, not fences. What is congressional response? Well, let's have more hearings and focus on the election. Where's the leadership? Where's the political will? Where are the ideals of inclusion? I suspect they are in this auditorium tonight. Most presidents from both sides of the aisle have acknowledged that immigrants enrich and strengthen the fabric of American life. Most recently, in his 2001 inaugural address, President George W. Bush avowed that America has never been united by blood or birth or soil. We are bound by ideals that move us beyond our backgrounds, lift us above our interests, and teach us what it means to be citizens. And every immigrant, by embracing these ideals, makes our country more, not less, American. I asked the class of 2010 to hold him and the U.S. Congress to these words. And to all of you, Godspeed in your sojourn through Princeton University. Thank you.
some people have the secret questions, but I'll entertain any question um, that you care to answer, you care to have answered. Yes? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Maybe we should take some sociology courses. Um, you know, race is a, is a my, my brother-in-law who teaches at University of California at Irvine says, race is a pigment of your imagination. We have defined race variously, and one of my favorite lectures is on the curious ways of the U.S. Census. We define it differently all times. In 1980, we had we came up with about 10 different racial categories. In the past, we've had there as few as uh, uh, four or five. So it's a constantly evolving category that presumes that there is some fundamental biological difference that divides us. And, of course, the Human Genome pro Program has shown that that is not true. But by default, ethnicity is supposed to be some uh, primordial characteristic that relates to culture, shared cultural values and belonging, and that people relate to through ancestry. Uh, but in, in effect, race and ethnicity actually converge in, in, in many ways. So the divide is, is what we make it out to be. Hispanics as a label, or Asian as a label, also doesn't have any coherence. In fact, the, the Asian nationalities are listed as racist ever since 19, uh, 1980. I guess there were 12 races. Samoan Islanders were listed as a separate race. And nothing gets people more upset than some of these questions. In 1980, the Hispan putting Hispanic origin on the census schedule as 100%, that meant that everybody in the U.S. had to answer it, got people's hackles up because they... Most people didn't even know what an Hispanic was. And in fact, some people, they took out the question, the category Central and South America because in a survey that was done in the mid-70s, when they put the category, they put our Hispanic, yes. They put, you get to opt out, no, not Hispanic. But they had a category called uh, yes, Mexican, Port Mexicano, Chicano, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Central slash South American, other Hispanic. People from the Central and Southern parts of the United States check Central and South America. Go figure. It's been very difficult. So, so, you know, I think it's a good thing if we know that there is another America, that there is our southern neighbors are also the Americas. And it is, it is a source of, of great consternation. So the Census Bureau um, resisted very much going to people self-identifying as ancestry for ethnicity, but, but um, we eliminated parentage. So it, uh, the, the Census Bureau, the Census is a living document. The history of the U.S. Census itself is incredibly interesting. It's the way we enumerate, but by default, it's also the way we reify. Uh, it would be great that we become, this class looks wonderful. It is America, I can see. Uh, but, but it would be wonderful if there is a, comes a time when we no longer need to use categories as the basis of classification. But as I've tried to point out, it's the economic differences more than the race and ethnic differences that are the true divisions or the fault lines of, that are pulling us apart. Yes? Hunger of Memory, the early one? No, not, not, not that one. Well, there is a lot more intermarriage uh, than there has been in the past. Uh, Hispanics have high rates of, of intermarriage. They tend to marry each other to, to some extent. But um, 
we still have a very rigid uh, color line in this country, much more than you will ever find in Latin America. So the racial divide in this country persists, even though we now have, we now have that uh, as of the census 2000, people could list more than one race. Uh, brown, what is brown? You know, I have to tell you a true story. When I was in college, I went to Michigan State University, and um, uh, there's some, they were recruiting. I was an RA in a dorm. I'm, do I look like the RA type? I was. Yeah. <laughs> I, w I, I lived in a dorm for four years also, uh, but I was in RA in a dorm, and uh, one of the, they, we were recruiting uh, people from Texas because they couldn't find any in Michigan, right? I was born in Texas. <laughs> Lone Star. But, but uh, a young lady told me, um, you're brown. And I thought, I'm not brown. I said, I'm white. She said, no, you're brown. And I, she was from San Antonio. Well, if you've lived... I realized when I went to graduate school what that meant, right? In Michigan, I could pass for white. When I went to graduate school, they made it, it was clear to me in no uncertain terms that I was not white. So the social context in which we operate determines how, who we are. We can say, I can say I'm white or I can say I'm Mexican or I can say I'm brown or I could say I'm, I'm green. But if you don't say I'm green, who I am depends not only on how I define myself, but how others define me. And ultimately, my own experiences will be shaped by both factors. Wouldn't it be nice if that didn't matter? Wouldn't it be nice if people only focus on what you have to say and what you're all about rather than what you look like? I still, I'm an optimist, and I, move, I hope that we move in that direction. But focusing on colors to characterize ourselves, I don't think is a very productive way to describe patterns of intermarriage. And patterns of intermarriage, the fact that they are so much more pervasive now, I think is a good thing. It really does show that we are the world demographically and that we will lead the world by showing that we can learn to live together. Um, my question is, why exactly is race and ethnicity on the census at all? Like, why is it necessary as a part of the census process? You know, there, for the longest time in Brazil, they never included race. Because in Brazil, they asserted, we are a cosmopolitan society. We are interracial, and therefore, why would we want to do this? Yet, in Brazil, it turns out that the parts of Brazil that are much darker, where there's less mixing, were by far the poorest. If we want to make any progress toward reducing the relationship between economic status and group membership, the only way we can monitor it is by measuring it. And until we actually reach the point that we say it's no longer needed, we are not a colorblind society. We do not become colorblind simply by wishing it so or asserting it. And by, by not counting, by not including race, which is one of the propositions that uh, what's Ward Connerly proposed in California, you will, uh, uh, race, uh, assuming that you're a colorblind, when in fact all you're doing is saying, good luck, swim. And the patterns of inequality along race and ethnic lines will continue to be egregious. Until we can monitor and show that we're making progress, we measure. But it shouldn't be a fetish, and that's a hard one to, to call. 
I don't want to exclude our friends who had all the courage to uh, come back excuse here. Excuse me? Sorry. <laughs> okay. <You wanna> Over <laughs> here. Hi. Oh. Um. Uh, how would you interpret the example of Western Europe, uh, particularly France? Uh, in France, I know that they pretty much deny the existence of separate religions and separate, and to some extent, separate races. But you have intensely uh, Muslim ghettos. You have riots in the streets. It, the solution of ignoring separate identities does not seem to be working in Western Europe. And how would you say that the Hispanic question in America is different? Um, you can answer that and then. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, my question has to do with, you, you told us what. <laughs> you, you, t you told us what should, you told us what should happen. Do you think that um, George Bush's plan uh, that, that came out uh, late spring, early summer, immigration reform is, is, a, is a good plan, that it, it's on target? If, what amendment should be made if, if you don't think it's successful? I think the lessons from Europe are very important. There was a time when cities were the great integration machines. Remember the four waves that I laid out for you. The third wave coincided with our process of urbanizations. Even though new waves would settle in ethnic enclaves, and we still have the vestiges of the ethnic enclaves in, in our major cities, Chicago and New York, they, they, began, they became stepping stones for, for, for assimilation, spatial integration and assimilation. Cities and schools began, became the integration machines, and we had a massive Americanization movement that emphasized education and civic integration as a way to belong, that everybody had to, uh, had to learn English, uh, and, and they fostered naturalization movements and the like. In Europe as we are currently experiencing in the U.S., and this is a very dangerous sign. When you start, when you have segregation of the immigrant groups in little enclaves, then that looks like it's promoting separatism. It may or may not. And the Toombs County, Georgia example is, is kind of worrisome. But it's not the only case. There are many cases throughout the U.S. where we're having these little uprisings. They, they, they've seen that they're portrayed as cultural wars. One of my freshmen last fall wrote a paper where he compared three different communities in three different states where there had had these uprisings of, of anti-immigrant sentiment. And guess what? He said, you know, they all have about the same population. They all have about the same percent white. They all have the same housing values. There's something very similar about, about this. And so what looked like was a culture war, in fact, was an income class war. Once the immigrant community reached a critical mass, there was a massive rejection of the, of the other. In Europe, they, France has on the one hand, this is the ultimate contradiction, on the one hand, we profess liberty, equality, the revolution, and yet they deliberately, overtly say, but we don't want you to wear your headscarf and we don't want you to, to pray here. And, that simply is inconsistent. It's a fundamental contradiction. And the cities in Europe, not only France, but also Germany, have ceased to be integration machines. That's a problem. If the ultimate goal is to 
the terms of belonging are defined by the level of integration, and Europe is failing in that. Now, we have this ultimate dilemma in the U.S. and with the Hispanic other. The issues are not whether Hispanics can belong, but, but the immigration question was not only defined recently. George Bush put this on the table in 2003, and he understands that we, had, that we need laborers in this economy, understands that, cater to the business community. This is good. But can we afford to do so on a two- or three-tiered system where we have native-born citizens, foreign-born residents, undocumented residents? Can we afford to do that? The terms of belonging, the children of undocumented immigrants, are be, there are lots of them. They are already entering on an uneven playing field. What consequences does that, will this play out? What kind of scarring is likely to take place? We have not, we've tried since the, since the 60s to equalize opportunity. We've made some progress and we've gone back on many, many dimensions. And the most important is education. To the extent that we continue not to offer education of equal caliber across the board, we will continue to reproduce race and ethnic inequality. But it is a class-based inequality, not a race-based. That it coincides with race is not the same thing as saying that race and ethnicity are the fundamental drivers. And that's getting the cause and the consequence confused. So I think we know what we have to do if we want to play the moral high ground. It is not possible to turn to, to deport 12 million people. I don't care what you write on paper. It's not possible for that to happen. We have a history where we deported legal U.S. citizens in the 1950s with Operation Wetback. If you look Mexican and you live in Texas, go back. So when, when the economy gets really difficult, it's very easy to say, well, you know, we have to send these back. We have to send these people back. One of the women who was interviewed in Chicago, uh, she lived in the inner city, and she said, you know, I think the problem here, we have to send back the Mexicans where they came from, the Puerto Ricans where they came from, and we got to send the, back, the, the, the blacks back where they came from. They send them back to Africa. I mean, where is this lady's sense of history? What school does she go to? Yet, when people have these attitudes, it's very difficult to think about what the, char what the challenge of integration is. So... Here we have the future leaders. You have an opportunity to understand, to use your intellect, to think about the questions and not respond with political uh, expediency. And you should know that even though the Congress is like attacking each other and they're very polarized, the U.S. population is not so polarized about immigration. That's who they represent. And we cannot, we have to deal with the legal status of the 12 million people who are here. And we have to implement employer sanctions until we end, we end the job magnet that workers will continue to go. It's a matter of supply and demand and human ingenuity. And no legislation, I don't care who signs it and who writes it, will ever fix that until we deal with the cause and not the consequence of, of, um, of the employer sanctions. I can take one more question and then... Um, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you pick them? All right. The, oh, from the balcony. Okay. I have a question that's a little more specific. Okay. Um, you spoke of closing educational gaps. Now, um, to what extent do you think affirmative action should play in this issue? Uh, 
I offer, I'm, I've been doing research on higher education to, uh, shortly after I came to Princeton. Uh, one of the former presidents called me in and wanted me to work on it. I told him no, I was busy. But then I started thinking about it. And at the time, it looked, I said, uh, you know, we can't have affirmative action. Support for affirmative action is waning, and therefore the, the legitimacy will be a hard one to sell. Then I taught this course, this seminar, uh, about affirmative action, what had actually happened, and what I looked at the data, I looked at the evidence, and I said there really aren't alternatives to affirmative action. And we must change the leadership. And this is what's key for affirmative action. We need to change the leadership in order to bring about meaningful, lasting change. Not just at the bottom, because that's a hard one. We need to work at the top and the bottom of the uh, educational distribution. So. I was turned around by looking at the data and the fact that there are no alternatives. I've done more work, and it, uh, one of the things that's very interesting is, uh, you know, everybody's focusing on test scores, and I've heard, print, I won't, not this class, of course, but other classes that came here had said, well, they put on their curriculum 1600 on the SAT. Well, who cares? Because the SAT has taken on a life of its own, and it, it because universities now use it, I've done the analyses. Over time, the weight placed on admission by SAT, whether it's by design or default, it doesn't matter, has increased over time. And what that does is disadvantage students who went to, the, to, to uh, uh, schools where they get really good grades, like I did. But I didn't, the test scores weren't up there. Well, you know, if you're raised in a house where there's not a single book, if your parents are undocumented immigrants, as mine were, if you're raised poor, no, you don't have all the advantages, but that doesn't mean you can't learn and that you can't be among the best. And so what, when affirmative action was first put in place, and even the SAT, the SAT was designed to find talent among the meritocracy, among, among, that you wouldn't find from the elite. Most people don't know that, and what's happened over time, it's become just the opposite, that it becomes the basis of exclusion. And if, uh, uh, if you eliminate the SAT and just use class rank, or, which is a measure of grades, to, uh, basically the, the so-called advantage to minorities would be, for Hispanics it totally disappears, and for blacks it's cut down from four to one. Now, what's that about? It's, we've made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. And by the way, we're also ranking schools on the basis of where, you know, what their average SAT score is. So it's become kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. We wouldn't need affirmative action if we would just look at the full person and their ambition and their talents within the circumstances that they had to um, deliver. So is affirmative action necessary? Yes. Can we narrowly tailor it? Yes. Has Princeton done a good job? Absolutely. And that's why I really enjoy teaching here. Uh, even, even though I'm on leave, I, I really do look forward to getting to know some of you and um, uh, talking with you sometime. Maybe we can have some informal activities. Uh, but uh, for now, I have to make a beeline to finish a paper. Good night. Well, I know that Professor Tiendra has left you with a lot to think about. So with that, I invite you to return to your colleges and talk about these issues more.